Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, and welcome to the History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is Episode 7. Action, Reaction. Last episode, we covered the campaigns of the Umayyad Caliphate in Aquitaine and focused on the most significant battles of those campaigns, namely the battles of Toulouse and Poitiers. This episode, we will examine an event, or really a series of events, that rocked the Umayyad Caliphate to its core and in the process began a chain reaction that would ultimately lead to Al-Andalus breaking free from the empire and establish itself as an independent kingdom. We will also pick up where we left off with the Asturian kingdom in episode 5. But before we get to the dramatic events, we need to explore some of the social and cultural forces that were at work behind the scenes. By the time of the Iberian conquest in 711 AD, three generations had already passed since the death of the Prophet Muhammad, which is a significant amount of time for many of those under Muslim rule to have converted to Islam and even be integrated into Arab society. An interesting tidbit I ran across is that it seems that a substantial amount of those who were new or recent converts were either slaves or freedmen. It's been posited that the majority of these folks at this time were actually Persians, since Jews and Christians were afforded a certain amount of toleration in the Quran, a tolerance that was not extended to pagans, which the Arabs most certainly considered the Persian Zoroastrians to be. In case you don't know, Zoroastrianism originated in ancient Iran and is one of the world's most ancient religions that is still practiced today. New converts and freedmen were, in theory, supposed to be granted every right and privilege that Islam offered. 
and one of the major privileges granted to Muslims was exemption from certain tax obligations, which is a pretty big deal. But as time passed and the conquered populations began converting, sources indicate that not everyone was being granted the same privileges that their Arab co-religionists enjoyed. And add to this the fact that when Muslim settlers began to buy land from non-Muslims, the government refused to revoke the tax obligations of the land in question, and thereby violating religious law. From the perspective of the government, they were in a lose-lose predicament. As conversion rates to Islam increased, the available taxable population decreased. And the government in Damascus was always in serious need of revenues, since running an empire is not cheap. But the longer this went on, the more discontent grew among new converts and freedmen for not receiving the tax breaks that were promised to them. And discontent among the Arab population was also growing due to the ever-increasing un-Islamic regime that the Umayyads were becoming. And these are only a couple of examples of the many grievances that were spreading like cracks in glass throughout the caliphate. Cracks that will eventually shatter the regime and fragment the empire. Out of all the conquered peoples of the caliphate, the Berbers occupied a somewhat unique position. As Islamicized religiously and Arabized linguistically as they had become, the Berbers were still very much attached to their own native culture and traditions. By its very nature, the process of acculturation takes quite a long time to take hold on any population. Moreover, the Berbers put up the most protracted resistance of any group that the Arabs encountered. And I have to think that resistance to outside influence must have been baked into the various cultures under the Berber umbrella. We see evidence of this by the sheer fact that despite 1,000-year presence of the Roman Empire in North Africa, the Berbers refused to be seduced by settled life and did not embrace the Hellenistic culture that dominated the entire Mediterranean world for well over a millennium. In this respect, they were remarkably similar to the Basque population of northeast Spain. I've seen it stated that it was because of this independent nature of the Berbers that the Arabs despised them and even derided them as racially inferior. Additionally, to add more fuel to the fire, sources also mentioned that Arabs would take Berber children for the harems of the Umayyad elite. Something else to consider. When the Berbers originally crossed into the Iberian Peninsula in 711, the consensus is that they were employed as mercenaries by the Arabs, and the habit of employing Berber mercenaries to be stationed in Iberia continued for quite a long time thereafter. While the Arabs usually settled in the more comfortable major towns and cities, the Berbers were typically sent to vulnerable frontier areas where violence was much more likely to occur particularly in the north and northwest of the peninsula, where Muslim rule was very tenuous. And this is an important point to make note of. The forces garrisoning the northern 20 to 30 percent portion of the peninsula were almost all exclusively Berber mercenaries and freedmen. 
So, for the Arabs, the Berbers filled the role of despised but necessary defenders of the frontiers. And to complicate matters even further, the local conquered populations were understandably not thrilled at having Berber garrisons in their towns. By the looks of things, the Berbers were just surrounded by people who hated them. Given this background and all these factors, it shouldn't come as a surprise that in 740, when the governor of Egypt instituted a land tax on the Berbers, and therefore reducing them to a subordinate status, it sparked a revolt by the North African Berbers against the Umayyads. I mean, think about it. The Berbers were promised all the advantages that came through submission. They bore the brunt of the conquest in Iberia, they bore the brunt of the killing fields in Aquitaine, and now, after all the service and sacrifice, they were expected to take abuse, disrespect, and pay for the privilege? This was an untenable situation. The Berbers went on to deliver the Umayyads, some of their most humiliating defeats, defeating multiple Arab armies from Syria, further necessitating ever-increasing amounts of Arab reinforcements to be sent to North Africa. One of the more well-known battles of this war occurred when a large military campaign was organized by the Umayyads to what is now modern Morocco to crush the rebellion. It didn't go well for the Arabs. In either September or October of 741, the Umayyad army was defeated in northern Morocco, leaving about 10,000 Arab survivors, now led by a certain Balj ibn Bishir, fleeing for their lives to the north, to a tiny peninsula where the city of Ceuta is located. Back in Iberia, Abd al-Malik, a former governor of al-Andalus, led an army revolt that deposed the sitting governor at the time. Allegedly, Abd al-Malik was infamous for being an excessively cruel man, and almost immediately the Berbers of al-Andalus rebelled. What's uncertain at this point is whether or not the rebellion was sparked by the coup or by the rebellion that was raging in North Africa. Either way, Abd al-Malik was in trouble. Serious trouble. Because a substantial amount of Berbers that were stationed in the north of the peninsula marched down to Cordoba with the intention of deposing him. Further thinning out the Muslim military presence from the north. Thus far, his attempts to defeat the Berbers had all failed. The situation was looking desperate. But there was some hope. Abdel Malik had been keeping up with the events in North Africa, which gave him a good idea. A really, really good idea. He reached out to the Syrian army that was currently trapped, starving, and under siege in Ceuta. He offered Balj ibn Bishir a deal where he would save them by ferrying all 10,000 of them over to Iberia in exchange for putting down the Berber rebellion. It was also agreed that land should be assigned in Al-Andalus to provide support for the Syrian army. What this probably meant in practice is that the revenues of the assigned lands would be earmarked to pay for the logistical support of the army. The final and most important condition of this deal was that once the rebellion was suppressed, that the Syrian army would go back to Syria, 
They agreed on the terms and eagerly crossed over into the Iberian Peninsula with 10,000 starving men. What could go wrong? This was a really good plan. With the might of an experienced and battle-hardened army at his back, Abdal-Malik would be unstoppable. Wait, that's not how it went down? Yeah, once the Berber rebellion in Iberia was suppressed, Balj ibn Bishr marched to Cordoba, where he had Abdal-Malik crucified, along with crucifying a dog and a pig on either side of him. This wasn't just an execution. This was an exercise in excruciating torture, degradation, and humiliation. All indications point towards existing blood feuds being at the root of this killing. And these were blood feuds that were already in play all the way back in the Middle East. Blood feuds were a traditional part of life in Arab society. In fact, blood feuds were a prominent feature of every tribal society at this time. Just ask the Anglo-Saxons. From here on out, there will be incidents and events that will have old and deep tribal feuds as their point of origin. We will not get into the specifics or background for any of these feuds, simply because it would grind the narrative to a standstill. But just keep in mind that familial and tribal loyalties are always in play in the background of these events. In any case, the killing of Abdal-Malik set the stage for nearly 20 years of blood feud violence that up to this point had been avoided, but no longer. Additionally, the introduction of 10,000 Arab soldiers into the peninsula had a substantial destabilizing effect on the nascent social structure of Al-Andalus. By effectively dividing the Muslim population into two factions, the Syrians versus the people of the conquest. Shortly after his murder, Abdal-Malik's two sons, along with members of their tribe, rose up and attacked Balj ibn Bishir in revenge for the murder of their father. Though they were defeated, they did manage to kill Balj ibn Bishir in the battle. So, once again, Al-Andalus had no governor. For the next four years, division, murder, and revenge ran rampant in Al-Andalus. Until Yusuf ibn Abd al-Haman of the faction backed by the people of the conquest took power, and in the process massacred large numbers of the Syrian faction, and basically just set up a dictatorship that lasted until 756. Needless to say, that during these chaotic days, the authority of the caliph and the governor of North Africa in Al-Andalus was almost non-existent. While all these events were occurring in Iberia, back in the Middle East, the cracks in the glass that was the Umayyad Empire finally shattered. In 749 AD, all the discontent that had been steadily rising against the Umayyad dynasty finally blew up in the form of a large-scale revolt in eastern Persia. Disillusioned recent converts, Shiites, which are the supporters of the descendants of Muhammad's cousin Ali, and the Abbasids, who were the heirs of the Prophet's uncle, 
all joined forces and proceeded to defeat the Umayyad army and kill the Caliph. The Umayyad dynasty that had reigned over a united Islamic empire that stretched from modern-day Pakistan to the Iberian Peninsula for 83 years was finally extinguished. And in its place, a new dynasty arose. The Abbasid dynasty. The new caliph, Abu al-Abbas, known as the Shedder of Blood, ordered that all members of the Umayyad family be massacred. However, the massacre of the Umayyad family wasn't as thorough as the Shedder of Blood would have wished, because Abd al-Hamman, the grandson of the last Umayyad caliph, managed to escape the murderous net thrown on his family. He was able to travel undetected to North Africa, where the Berbers gave him sanctuary. He then made his way to Morocco, where he sent his freedmen into Iberia to take stock of the situation. And the situation was very favorable for the last heir of the Umayyads. Yusuf, the current governor, was hated by various factions within the peninsula for his dictatorial style of rule. Add to that a famine that had been gripping the whole peninsula for six years, and well, you have yourself a recipe for revolt. Abdul Haman crossed into Iberia where he gathered a huge number of supporters, marched on Cordoba where he deposed and later killed Yusuf. On the 14th of May, 756 AD, at the age of 26, Abd al-Hamman was proclaimed Amir in the Mosque of Cordoba. His first order of business was to secure his position as ruler. By carefully placing feuding Arab tribes away from each other around the kingdom and stacking the city of Cordoba and its surrounding suburbs full of his supporters and fellow tribesmen. This process took many years and he faced several rebellions. Slowly but surely, though, Abdul Haman established himself as the principal political power in Al-Andalus. Now secure in his position, he set up an independent state, separate from the rest of the Islamic world. Now that Al-Andalus finally had a competent and widely supported leader, the endemic tribal violence began to decline, and order was, if not restored, then at least more prevalent. Though he was successful in achieving a large degree of political unity within the kingdom, he was faced with a challenge that his predecessors, the Romans and the Visigoths, did not have to deal with. A culturally fragmented population that was for the most part, if not hostile, then at least constantly at odds with each other. Arab tribal divisions and blood feuds along with large numbers of Berbers, freedmen, and Christians, pushed and pulled in different directions according to their interests. All this meant was that the Amir had the Herculean task of trying to balance all of these groups' interests without upsetting anyone too much. As mentioned before, famine had been widespread in the peninsula for six years. And... One of its side effects was to speed up the job that the Berber rebellion started. And by that, I mean that the famine drove away many of the Berbers left in the north and northwest back south 
and in many cases, the Berbers just went back to North Africa. By now, the mountain range known as the Central System, that bisects the Iberian Peninsula at an angle, essentially became the northwest border of Al-Andalus. Cities like Coimbra, Coira, Talavera, Madrid, and Guadalajara were all frontier towns. This would remain the case for about the next three centuries. The Northeast was a very different story. As you know from last episode, in this area, the Umayyads had pushed into the Pyrenees and into Septimania. In 759, three years after the ascension of Abdelhaman as Amir, our old friend Charles Martel's son, Pippin, managed to conquer the city of Narbonne from the Arabs. But this was the only headway they had managed to make at this point. By now, it was obvious that the Muslim presence in Iberia was there to stay. Any local resistance had dissipated. A new generation of post-conquest Arabs and Berbers were being born in Al-Andalus and growing up. And converts were beginning to be made among the indigenous people. Back in the Christian north, Pelagius' son-in-law, the first true king of the kingdom of the Asturias, Alfonso I, also known as Alfonso the Catholic, who I'm sure was very well informed on the happenings in Al-Andalus, saw opportunities present themselves now that the Berbers were vacating his backyard and the Andalusi Arabs were at each other's throats. Alfonso jumped at the opportunity to establish fortified outposts in the Dodo Plains and began launching raids into Muslim territory. Several of the main towns and cities of Galicia and the Meseta were raided by the Asturians, including Lugo, Porto, Braga, Salamanca, Astroga, and Leon. Notably, they did not try to occupy these towns or the surrounding countryside. The most likely reason being that the limited military strength that the Asturians possessed was just not enough to hold such a large and exposed area that would undoubtedly be counterattacked by the Arabs as soon as they sorted themselves out. Alfonso decided to take a couple of measures to bolster his population back home and to create a no-man's land between himself and the Umayyads. First, he forcibly relocated the populations of those towns and surrounding areas back to the Asturias. And second, he ordered the destruction of all fortifications and settlements within that zone presumably to prevent the Umayyads from coming back and re-garrisoning those same fortifications. The upshot of all this was the pillaging and abandonment of the Dodo Valley and western Galicia. Once things calmed down in Al-Andalus, the new Asturian kingdom became a target for the Umayyads, who conducted annual raids against them. But that was the extent of it. Raiding was always the objective, and not conquest. Alfonso I died in 757 AD, leaving the throne to his son Fruella I, also known as Fruella the Cruel. Fruella is noted to have conducted raids and massacres on the very few remaining Berber strongholds in Galicia. These acts were the final nail in the coffin of Muslim presence in the north and northwest of the peninsula. This allowed Fruella to begin repopulating Galicia, using the river Minyu 
as the southern border of his kingdom for that particular area. By this point in time, the kingdom of the Asturias had extended to the east to encompass, if not all of Basque territory, then probably most of it, but we're just not sure on that one. The Asturias was now composed of three culturally and politically distinct parts. This added a complexity to the kingdom that would prove difficult to manage for future generations. King Fruella ended up marrying a Basque woman, and they had a child together, conveniently named Alfonso II. In 768, Fruella would end up getting killed by one of his own followers. And we just don't know why, since the sources are so lacking in detail. When Fruella died, his infant son was passed over and the kingship was given to Fruella's cousin, Aurelius, who ruled for six years. Now, why was Alfonso II passed over? It seems that the Asturian monarchy was set up in a similar manner to that of the Visigothic monarchy, where a council of nobles would appoint the kingship. Of course, this system was rife with factionalism, where council members frequently put up their own candidates. During Aurelius' reign, it seems that he was at peace with the Umayyads in the south. It's mentioned in the record that Aurelius had to deal with a slave revolt. But the record gives us no indication as to why this happened, only that it was successfully put down. Aurelius died in 774. He was succeeded to the throne by an Asturian noble named Silo, who married the daughter of Alfonso I, Adosinda. He too faced a slave rebellion in Galicia. He is also responsible for relocating the Asturian capital from Cangas to Pravia, where he had the Church of Santa Inés built. When Silo died in 783, his wife Adosinda, along with other members of the court, backed her nephew Alfonso II to inherit the crown. But as happens so often in succession battles, an illegitimate son of Alfonso I, a guy named Mauregatus, swept in and took power, forcing Alfonso II to run away to Basque territory where his mother was from. Scholars are not certain as to why exactly Alfonso II was so unpopular, but on the death of Mauregatus in 788, he was passed over again this time in favor of Aurelius' brother Vermudo I, also known as Vermudo the Deacon, since only three years after taking the throne, he abdicated to become a priest. Whether this action was forced or voluntary is unknown. Once Vermudo I abdicated, finally, at long last, at the age of 31, Alfonso II was appointed as King of the Asturias. We will leave Alfonso II right here for now, basking in the glow of his long overdue coronation, before the real work starts. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode. 
and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.